Well, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27, uh, we're going to continue this Lord's Day in our study of Matthew's Gospel. And as you know, we are near the end of our study uh, as we are now in the final moments uh, of the life of Christ leading up to His crucifixion and resurrection. We've been looking at this and evaluating uh, Christ as our King going to the cross for our sin But in those moments, people not understanding him as king, uh, people wanting a different kind of king. And so we looked last week at how the people shouted out for Barabbas. They they wanted a revolutionary. They wanted someone who here and now was going to lead them to some sort of victory. And yet what they didn't see was that God had for them one who would lead them to eternal victory, Christ Jesus. And so we're going to continue to look at that this Lord's Day by looking at Matthew 27 verses 27 through 44. And so I'm going to read that for us and then pray for our time in God's Word. And this is what God says to us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as Matthew writes down these words, beginning in verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put on his clothes and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Let's pray for our time in God's word this morning. Father, as we look to your word, we are reminded very clearly today of the cross. Lord, it's easy for us to to look at it, to read about it, and to to completely miss what's taking place here. Father, I pray that wouldn't be the case this morning. I pray your Spirit would awaken us, would would help us to see and understand and, and believe and repent based on what we see in your Word. And we pray for these things in Christ's name. Amen. We certainly... Here at the church had a had a full weekend, and I just want to take a moment before we look at the text to thank you who helped out so much with our silent auction uh, last night. We had that for our building fund, and to let you know that 
we were able to raise uh, close to $19,000 from that to put towards exhausting the debt we have in our building. And, and we're very grateful for that and, and grateful for all the people that helped out. Uh, these things don't just happen. They take a great amount of time and effort and energy, and we appreciate folks who did that. And uh, my family certainly enjoyed it. We, we had a very full weekend. That kind of capped it. Um, ours started on Friday. Uh, we had to take our children shoe shopping. Uh, for any of you that have four small children, you know what a joy that is. And so uh, we, we had a long evening doing that and run some other errands. And so by the time we got back to our driveway, it was about uh, 9.30, 9.45 at night, and we were tired. And so we, we unloaded the car. We got everybody inside, and Sandy and I sat down on the couch, and kids are brushing their teeth, getting ready for bed. And all of a sudden, the car alarm went off. And, uh, you know, knowing we'd had some break-ins recently, I got in, you know, defensive mode. And so uh, I walked out there with uh, the little car alarm thing in hand, looking around to see somebody was trying to get in the car and realizing probably nobody was. And sure enough, I didn't think they were. But as, my, as I glanced around, I suddenly noticed uh, a head pop up in our car. And I got a little, you know, on edge. And then I realized it was the head of Anna Claire, our daughter. <laughs> Uh, in all of our haste, we had failed to realize that she had fallen asleep in the car, and we had <laughs> left her in it, and uh, now she was frightened because as she tried to get out, she couldn't, and the arm was going off. And so I apologized to her greatly for her mother leaving her in the car like that. <laughs> and so as I was scolding Sandy, uh, we... We were reminded that oftentimes in life we, we get into routines and habits and there's things that we do so often that sometimes we don't stop to look at the details, like leaving one of your children in the car. Uh, but, but even greater than that, as Christians, we kind of approach God's Word that way. Uh, it's easy for us to read God's Word, especially familiar sections of God's Word, and not really stop to look at the details. And we certainly see that in texts like today's. For all of us who are believers, we have encountered texts like this over and over again. We know that Christ was crucified on our behalf. And, and there's, there's, there's a, a little bit here that's difficult because there's not a lot in the text that tells us about the crucifixion. Uh, the, the authors intentionally don't give great detail. And so oftentimes the way you see Christians dramatize the crucifixion or portray it, uh, they, 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 they try to add so much to it that the Scripture says very little because we can't fully understand the suffering Christ endured. And yet at the same time, the Scripture does give us some detail that we need to pause and consider, that we don't need to just walk right past because we think we know everything about it. And so this morning, I want to look at some of those details in Matthew 27, uh, particularly to Matthew's Gospel. Matthew looks at the crucifixion as a great mockery. Uh, he uses that term throughout this text that, that Jesus was mocked. And in that we see that Christ was humiliated. We see that, that he was the suffering servant who went to the cross for us. And so I want to look at that, particularly at that issue of mockery, as we look to different people that are encountering cross here and how they treat him leading up to and at his crucifixion. The first one we're going to look at is the soldiers who we see here in verses 27 through 31. The soldiers here mocking Jesus by hailing him as a king. Mocking Jesus by hailing him as a king. You'll remember from last week's study that Jesus had been brought before Pilate, the governor. And, and there's that scene where Pilate essentially says he, he is washing his hands, he is clean before God. 
We talked about how no one can make themselves clean before God, that the only one who was truly clean was Christ Jesus. And yet Pilate is under some notion that he, he can proclaim himself innocent. And we see what a farce that is even as we continue the text because the, the place that Jesus then is mocked by the soldiers is, is here in Pilate's house. It's, it's out essentially in an area surrounding his palace. When we see that's where it's at, we see who it is there. The text tells us the soldiers, they gathered a whole battalion before him. Uh, We know historically that a battalion numbered anywhere from about 600 to close to possibly even 1,000 soldiers. And so if you just kind of get that for a moment, this scene where leading up to this, the text has told us that Jesus was scourged, and that means he was beaten severely, nearly to the point of death, which is probably why he did not even carry his own cross. He probably physically could not at that point. And so here we have Christ who is just beaten and scourged and and these soldiers lead him out and then there's just this complete mockery. See, this this scene would be a familiar one in a different way. If if someone truly was a, an authority, if, if a Caesar were to come, the, the, the battalion would gather, they would kneel before him, they would hail him as their ruler. These soldiers do not believe that Jesus is truly king and in their mockery, They are essentially setting that stage to to hail him as if he's some sort of king, but to do it in a way of humiliation, to do it in a way where they mock him. text tells us one of the first things that they do is they take him out there in verse 28 is they, they strip him. They put before them Jesus essentially in his nakedness. When you think about that for a moment, you go back to Genesis, and you look in the garden, and you see there in the garden that one of the the first effects we see of the fall is there's shame that comes with nakedness. Adam and Eve are suddenly in their sin, they're ashamed, and so they try to cover themselves. We know as we read through Genesis that, that the fig leaves that they sewed together was not sufficient to cover themselves, that God, He sacrifices an animal so that they would cover themselves with skin. He is pointing towards one who will ultimately be sacrificed for them. And so, how amazing it is to see that even in an attempt to mock Jesus, that they are stripping Him, they are pointing out something they don't even realize, that here is Jesus, the one who would bear the shame of man. The one who would bear the sin of man. That, that shame that comes in the garden. That shame that we see all the way down to Revelation. The text tells us in the book of Revelation that, that Christ, he, he covers us in clothes of righteousness to cover the shame of our nakedness. Well, here he is being presented that way, but in doing that, he is taking on our shame. It says that they put a scarlet robe on him. This was likely one of the the soldier's robes, but it was to indicate, again, royalty. Uh, It was to indicate uh, this was a king. A king would wear a robe, usually uh, a royal vestment. The other gospel accounts tell us that this was more of a a purple robe, which would indicate royalty. Again, there's this picture here of the gospel. Uh, Matthew Henry, in his commentary, makes this point about that. He says, Christ, being clad in a scarlet robe signified his bearing our sins to his shame in his own body upon the tree that we might be washed in our robes, made them white in the blood of the Lamb. 
There's just this picture that the Scripture gives us from beginning to end. We're ashamed. We try to cover ourselves. Our covering's not sufficient. God is the one who must cover us. And ultimately, He covers us through them stripping Christ so that in His humiliation and shame, He can go to the cross to ultimately cover us. The Scripture tells us in Revelation that you and I will stand before the throne of God and we'll all be wearing white vestments, white robes and that's not just so that we can have some uniform policy in heaven that, you know, that, that we all match. There's significance there in the Scripture. Those robes are made white by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we see that here in the text. The text goes on to tell us in verse 29 that they twisted together a crown of thorns and they placed it on Jesus' head. And you think about this for a moment. Again, they're, they're mocking Jesus, so they want to they make Him look almost like this make-believe king, but, but there's more to it than that. I mean, they could have taken anything to make a crown. They, they could have taken weeds. They could have taken something else, but it's significant. They, they take thorns here to make a crown for Him. Again, in part, it's because they, they want to hurt Jesus. They, they have scourged him. The texts are going to tell us that they will actually strike him in the head. And so there's this picture here of just the inhumanity of what they're doing to Christ. But again, there's a picture of God's sovereign hand showing something here. So you go back to Genesis again and you see not only as a result of the fall... That it is a result that, that Adam and Eve are shamed. We see that there's a, a consequence given out. There's a curse. And if you'll remember, part of that curse to Adam is, is that from now on, the, the earth will produce thorns and thistles that, 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 that he will have to labor against the ground that will bring forth fruit. We, we see thorns specifically as a mark of the curse, as a mark of the fall. A number of years ago, I was in West Africa. I've shared many times about some of my experiences there. And I remember that the first time that I went there on a mission trip, just noticing how not only dry and barren everything was, but for the vegetation that was, was there, just about everything had thorns. And I remember talking to the missionary one day as we were walking around and we were just noticing, you know, no one was smiling there and every, there's famine and there's just disease and, and there's thorns and thistles. And, and he made the comment that, yeah, in, in Africa, everything's mad. Uh, you just see the curse. You just see anger. Even in the vegetation, there's these thorns everywhere. But that's significant. That marks something. That helps us to see something. Those thorns are a result of the fall, but not just that. Those thorns also kind of point towards a promise. So you continue through the scripture, you see there in Genesis 22, Abraham is called by God to offer up Isaac. And if you'll remember, he's going up with Isaac to make this offering. And Isaac says, you know, Daddy, where's, where's the offering? You know, we got the, got the fire and we got the wood. And where, where's the, the offering? And, and Abraham says, God's going to provide the offering. And, and we know, in a very miraculous way, God does provide the offering. The scripture tells us Abraham was willing to take the life of Isaac, and yet when he raised that knife to take his life, he looked over, and there, caught in the thicket, caught in that thorny bush, was a sacrifice to be in place of his son. And so you see all that, and you come here to Matthew, and you see this picture of Christ 
who is scorned, who is scourged, who is humiliated, who bears our shame, and he puts this crown of thorns on, the thorns that will remind us of the fall, but they also remind us that God is going to provide a sacrifice. And that's exactly what we see God provide in Jesus. Text goes on, verse 29 says, they put a reed in his hand, essentially this again would be a mockery of some make-believe king, like a scepter that he would have that says they're going to beat him with that. Verse 29 is very significant. It says then that this whole battalion bows on their knee and they mock him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Now what a picture that must have been to, to have Christ beaten, humiliated, standing there as they have adorned him as a mock king and they are all bow, bending on their knee. Do you think about what will one day take place? Scripture tells us in Philippians 2, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. What they did in mockery is what we will all do one day. As we go and we present the claims of Christ, there are some who respond to those claims and respond to the gospel in mockery, who say, who could ever believe that? You want me to believe that God loves me and yet God allows me to suffer and they may mock that? You want me to believe that I need to bow down and worship God, that somehow God needs me to worship Him? See, we want to think that this is all about us. And so when we present to someone this picture of the gospel that it's not about you, it's about God, many times they just, they just mock. And sometimes in their mockery, they'll, they'll mock the notion of Christ as king. And yet we will see, just like these guards who in mockery bended their knee, one day the scripture says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is indeed Lord. The scripture tells us, verse 30 and 31, that they, they spit on him. They strike him on the head and they lead him away to be crucified again. A picture we see there of the prophecy that we've looked at time and time again. Isaiah 53, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, and like a lamb he was led away to slaughter. And this is the picture we have in this this mockery. But it's not just the soldiers who are mocking Christ. As we go through the text, we also see here these onlookers, these, these people that we read about beginning in verse 32. And what we see here is that the, the people mock Jesus by referring to him as the Messiah. You see, a criminal, when they were crucified, it was customary that their charge be written out on some type of plaque or wood and, and placed there on the cross. And so as people walked by and saw these criminals, these, these people being crucified, they would be reminded this is a consequence of what they did. A crucifixion was disturbed as a very brutal reminder to people to avoid those things, to not do those things that had led to these people giving their lives, or their lives being taken from them. And yet we see here that the charge that was placed upon Jesus was not like the charge that was placed upon those on the cross beside him. We looked last week about how these robbers were more probably of insurrectionists. They may have been alongside the Barabbas who killed during a revolt someone else, maybe several people. They're they're guilty of insurrection. They're guilty likely of murder. That's the charge they would have placed on their cross. 
And yet, what's the charge for Jesus? The charge simply reads, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. To the Jewish people, that was a messianic title. To the Jewish people, that, that was the name of the Messiah. They, they had no king but the Messiah who they looked toward, who they believed would set them free from the, the, the oppression of Rome, who would restore Israel to its rightful place. The Messiah would do this. And yet here in mockery, we see the soldiers, we see the people, they mock Jesus by saying, oh yeah, sure, he's the Messiah. See, they didn't picture their Messiah on a cross. They pictured their Messiah on a throne. And so they mock him in this way. And we see others mocking him as well. And so the question that might come to you or me is this. Well, how were they ultimately supposed to know that Jesus was the Messiah? You and I today, on this side of the resurrection, the resurrection shows us that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, but at this point, Christ has not been resurrected. How were they supposed to know that Jesus was the Messiah? I mean, other people claim that. Even in their day, there had been people who said they were the Messiah. In our day, there's people who still say this. I remember the first time I went on a mission trip was 1993, and I remember that summer... Uh, about once a week, I was in Eastern Europe, I would get some type of news from the States. We didn't have, you know, internet and email and those things as much then. And so we would get a, an international newspaper about once a week to see what was going on. And I, I remember specifically that summer, one of the things going on was uh, the Branch Davidian cult and, and their compound being burned there in Waco, Texas. Many of you will remember that event. And if you remember, uh, their leader was a guy named David Koresh. And one of the things he claimed was that he was the Messiah. Uh, he claimed that, that he was the Christ, and people believed him and followed him. Uh, you may know that just this last year, uh, Sun Young Moon, the leader of the Unitarian Church, uh, many refer to as the Moonies, he passed away. Uh, his followers believed that he was the second coming of Christ, that he was the Messiah. So, so what separates one who says that they're the Messiah from Jesus. Well, what, what was it? Well, there's two things that stand out, and they're both based in the revelation of God. Uh, God would reveal that through His Spirit. And so we have, for example, situations like Matthew 16, where Jesus is asking, who do people say that I am? And you have Peter saying, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says to him, Peter, you didn't figure this out on your own. Uh, you, you didn't come to this conclusion because you sat down and studied world religions. Peter, you know this because the Father has revealed this to you. God would reveal to people that Christ was the Messiah. But not just in situations like that. God had been revealing to people the Messiah throughout the Scripture. God had been pointing towards the Messiah from the very foundation of time. And so we see in Genesis 3, in the curse, one will come that will crush the head of the serpent. That is pointing towards the Messiah. And then we see all that prophecy. Well, notice for just a moment this morning the number of prophecies we see fulfilled here in the text. This isn't all of them, but I just want to mention a few of them. Verse 34 says that they offered him wine mixed with gall. This was... There, there was a custom, you see this in Proverbs 31, we think about the, the Proverbs 31 woman and how godly she is, and one of the things it says in verses 6 and 7 in Proverbs 31 is she offers wine mixed with strong drink. 
uh, uh, sins there uh, of offering something that would ease pain to those who are hurting. There was a custom that Jewish women, even their criminals on a cross, would come by and would offer this to ease their pain. And so here we see this done differently. The soldiers are mocking Jesus still. They mix it with gall, which was essentially a, a bitter fruit. Uh, some translate it as poison. So they're trying to give Christ something, maybe not to numb his pain, maybe to poison him. And that, that was the fulfillment of a prophetic word. Psalm 69, verse 21. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. That, that word that was given to the psalmist we now see fulfilled on the cross. It's not just that, there are many others. Text tells us they divided his garments among them by casting lots. The Apostle John specifically tells us in his gospel this was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them for my clothing, they cast lots. Psalm 22, verse 18. Verse 36 says, They sat down and kept watch over him there. We know in the text that they were concerned that someone might steal the body of Jesus when it was in the tomb. What's the significance of this? They're just sitting and watching. Again in Psalm 22, verses 16 and 17. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. The psalmist would pin these words many years before. And Christ on the cross is fulfilling this. Verse 37, we've already mentioned over his head, they put a, a charge against him. His charge was when they were mocking, it was that he was the Messiah, and yet we see him fulfilling the prophecy about the Messiah. Verse 38, two robbers were crucified with him. Isaiah 53 that we've looked at many times. If you go on in verse 12, it says, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. There's this picture from Isaiah that the Messiah will be counted among, he'll be numbered among the transgressors. And here we have Jesus, not to the right or to the left of these men, but right there in the middle, which would indicate he was the chief transgressor. He was the main criminal, is what that would indicate. And here is Christ again fulfilling God's word. Verse 39, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. They did this out of disgust, but they did this also out of prophetic fulfillment. Psalm 22, all who seek me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. They say, he trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. We see that reference in Psalm 109. We see that reference in Lamentations 2. We see all these things over and over again. If they had just stopped for a moment to consider, this was indeed the Messiah. This was indeed the one that the Scripture spoke of. If they continue to mock him, verse 40 says, they say... If, if you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. You remember where you've heard that term before? Satan, as he takes Jesus, as he approaches Jesus there in the wilderness where Jesus is gone, led by the Spirit, says, if you're the Son of God, if you're the Son of God, turn those stones into bread. If you're the Son of God, takes him up to probably the, the, the top there of the temple. If you're the Son of God, then Jesus, jump down right now. What, what is Satan tempting Jesus with? 
saying, you jump down right now, the angels are going to protect you, but not just that. All these people are going to see who you are. All these people are going to know that you're truly the Son of God. You can prove it to them right now, Jesus. And let Jesus doesn't take any shortcuts to the cross, and He doesn't take any shortcuts on the cross. Could Jesus have come down off that cross? Of course. Jesus could have done anything. But He doesn't respond to them any more than He responded to Satan who wanted him to short-circuit, to, to not fulfill God's word. And he did that, we know, for us. He did that on our behalf. He did that for our sin. The last group we see here are the clerics and the criminals. And this is the last point I'll put in your notes, that they mocked Jesus by taunting him as a Savior. And he's been mocked and hailed as a king, a false king. He's, he's been mocked and scorned and... And in that, saying he's some type of false messiah. And, and here at the end, we see them mocking this whole notion that he's a savior. They, they say, verse 42, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. And then the clerics, the chief priests, they say, listen, if you want us to believe, just come down off that cross and we'll believe. Well, we'll believe if you do that, Jesus. You ever heard somebody say something like that? If Jesus just showed up right now, oh, I'd believe in him. And countless times when I've shared the gospel, I've had people respond in this way. Well, well, if Jesus would just do this, if Jesus would just perform this, then I would believe. And I simply say to them, no, you wouldn't. And you know why? Because Jesus did those things. The scripture tells us that after his resurrection, he appeared to more than 500. And yet the church records tell us that only about 133 went and cleansed themselves at the temple, indicating they actually responded to the Messiah. Think of all the people Jesus here in the flesh miraculously does things in front of throughout the gospel, and yet they don't believe. Some of those people are the ones who have him here on the cross. Some of them are the ones who say, oh yeah, you're the Messiah? Well, get down off that cross and, and then we'll believe Jesus. And people say that today. Oh, you want me to believe in God? Well, if God would heal my wife, then I'd believe. If God would help me get a job, then then I'd believe. If God would fix this, then I would believe. And they stand among those who are scorning Christ at the cross, saying, if you're really the Messiah, get down off that cross. They mock Him as well as others. They say, if he's really the Savior, then let him save himself. And yet we know that Christ, through the cross, offered salvation to us. But that's not the way they were thinking. They're thinking, well, if he can really save somebody, surely he would save himself. I mean, wouldn't we do that if we could save ourselves? Wouldn't we save ourselves? Struck by just a picture of history. Not too long ago, I was reading about the Titanic, and this was the 100th year anniversary of the Titanic and you've probably seen all the the Hollywood productions of the Titanic and and you like I then probably have a distorted view of what actually happened and so this account I was reading was here's some things you need to understand about what really happened on the Titanic and the one that I found very interesting was all the movies typically portray that as that ship was sinking that you have all these wealthy aristocrats basically pushing aside the peasants to get on the boat. They're going to save themselves. That's what you would do, right? There's almost like this this class warfare portrayed on the Titanic in modern movie productions that nobody cares about the peasants, about the servants. We're, We're wealthy. We need to save ourselves. That's kind of the attitude we think. We need to save ourselves. And yet historically, account after account said this. 
that among some of the wealthiest, most famous individuals on that ship, many of them were followers of Christ. Many of them professed to be Christians. And that the scene there as the ship was sinking was this, that one by one these wealthy, famous men would give their life jackets to peasants. That these wealthy men would give their spot on the boat to their servants, to someone else's servant. They would make sure all the women and children could get on those boats and be saved, and many of them sang hymns as the boat went down. Given the opportunity to save themselves, they did not save themselves. They made sure others were saved. And as I read that, I thought, what, what just a glimpse, what a picture there of something far greater that we have in the gospel. That here is one, Christ, deserving of none of this. He is bearing our shame for us. He is bearing the penalty of sin for us. He could have gotten down off that cross and saved himself, and yet he went to the cross to save even the very ones who were scorning him and mocking him. And friends, that is good news for us today. Because at your best and at my best, we still find ourselves mocking Christ. We still find ourselves giving God ultimatums and saying, well, if you're really God, then why don't you do this for me right now? And yet, Christ in His compassion for them and in His compassion for us, He bears that scorn, He bears that shame, and He bears the penalty for our sin that He might be delivered and resurrected, that we might then experience new life in Him. Perhaps you've heard that message over and over and over again, but there's some details that you've missed. Don't miss them this morning. Every one of us needs to repent. Every one of us needs to trust in Christ. Not in a way where we say, well, the gospel is sufficient to save me, but I've also got to work really hard, but in a way where we understand that we bring nothing to the table. That Christ on the cross indeed died for us, not in part, but in full. Perhaps this morning you need to repent of your attitude of works, that, that somehow you need to work to complete this. You don't need to complete anything. You simply need to repent and believe. Perhaps this morning, for the first time, you need to embrace the message of the gospel. To confess that Christ truly isn't Lord. To believe that God did raise Him from the dead. I want to invite you to respond in this way. If you'll go ahead and stand with me. We want to offer an opportunity for response. God may be leading you to come and repent, to confess Christ, to be baptized, to join this church family. God may be leading you simply there where you're at this morning. Just to repent. Perhaps as you look at His Word this morning, you realize that, that, that you've been thinking, you, you're bearing some of this for your sin. You, you're going to pay for some of your sin, and yet we see Christ on the cross paid for it in full. Perhaps you need to do as we're commanded in 1 John 1, 9, is confess and be cleansed. We invite you to do those things as we go into this time of invitation. If you would, pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, God, for the reminder we have from it this morning that Christ paid for our sin, not in part, but in full. Lord, I pray that we would respond through repentance and belief, and we pray for these things in Christ's name. Amen.